So I'm just going to give them each a card, token of our appreciation, and shake their hands, and you can clap if you want. David. He's validating wait, 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 wait. that a card was. Amazon gift card. Kidding, kidding, kidding. And now I would like to introduce Dr. John Fleming, the chair of ASLX, the chair of our council, uh, distinguished historian, founder of museums, still creating new museums. The latest one he's working on is the National Museum of African American Music, which is opening in Nashville, Tennessee next year. We're having some technical difficulty that we hope to resolve. It's being resolved? Okay. Um, <coughs> John told me to tell some jokes and uh, <laughs> talk about difficulty. <coughs> so it's my pleasure to introduce the person who will introduce our speaker. <laughs> they have to give me something to do. Dr. David Young is the executive director of the Delaware Historical Society and host committee co-chair, as has been noted, for the 2019 conference. Prior to his position at DHS, he served as the executive director of Klingdom National Trust for Historic Preservation Property in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. He also served as president of Historic Germantown, executive director of the Johnson House Historic Site and the Salem County Historical Society in Salem, New Jersey, as well as the director of education at the Edward Kent Museum of Philadelphia History. He's the author of books and, author and articles on public history and historical interpretation, including the upcoming a uh, book entitled Battles of Germantown, Effective Public History in America from Temple University Press. Dr. Young. Thank you very much. It's so great to see you. What a beautiful week in Philadelphia. It is always sunny, but it's been especially sunny since you came back after 60 years. It was 60 years since we last hosted the ASLH in Philadelphia. Let's not let it be another 60 years. Because have you had a good conference this week? I want to thank the uh, host committee volunteers who have been out there helping all of you all week long. And they were chaired ably by Ange Rydell of the National Archives and Ivan Henderson of the African American Museum. Let's give a, sh a shout out to our volunteers. All week long we have had conversations, personal conversations. The tone was set yesterday with our speakers Susan Burton and Talitha LaFloria. Uh, we've been getting beyond our comfort zone since you came to Philadelphia into this hotel. And we have been moving through the city in historic sites like Eastern State last night, that perfect evening last night, moving through spaces where people and the stories of people that have been hidden are now illuminated. And you've been learning about yourselves and your own organizations and the changes we can make in our communities. You have been able to do that throughout this week, all week long, through your personal stories and those of your organizations and those of the communities you are helping through your meaningful work. So I just want to say with what you've learned today, it's not, in this week, it's not so much what are we waiting for, it's too late to stop now. So let's keep going. It's my great honor to introduce our speaker who's going to give us a Philadelphia story. It's a Philadelphia historian and one of the nation's great historians. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. 
She is the Charles and Mary Beard Professor of History at Rutgers University, having left the University of Delaware a couple of years ago. Publications, teaching, and documentary appearances have placed her among a small number of African-American women who are scholars who study black life, culture, and gender up through the Civil War. Erica Dunbar received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania and her PhD in American History at Columbia University. Her first book, Fragile Freedom, African-American Women and Emancipation in the Antebellum City, was published in 2008 by Yale University Press. Her newest book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave on a Judge, is a startling and eye-opening look into America's first family. It is available for sale, and Dr. Dunbar will be signing copies not only of it, but of the children's reader version of Never Caught, which is also available. It's a powerful narrative of Ona Judge, George and Marsha Washington, Washington's runaway slave, who risked it all to escape Philadelphia when it was the nation's capital to reach freedom. She was named the 2017 nonfiction finalist for the National Book Award, and it was also awarded the Frederick Douglass Book Prize, and in June, it received the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award. Um, the middle grade reader, Never Caught, is also available, and her forthcoming book, out in a couple of months, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman, will be with us in November in tandem with the film that is coming out about Harriet Tubman. How do you do it, Dr. Dunbar? You will recognize her from her op-eds in the New York Times, from her editorial work on various uh, uh, scholarly journals like the, PMA, the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography or the uh, uh, Journal of African American History. Um, in 20, but uh, it's not just scholarship. It should be noted that Dr. Dunbar knows our work as a public historian. She made history by becoming the inaugural director of the program in African American history at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the nation's first library and one of its oldest cultural institutions. She now serves as the national director of the Association of Black Women Historians. And you'll see her in, on CNN, op-eds in the nation, Time, Essence, and local and regional newspapers. So she's also been at the table with work that we do. She has been on the board of historic sites like Cliveden. She has helped sites in historic Germantown with planning charrettes that have resulted in dynamic and provocative interpretation at the Johnson House and with the sites uh, associated with the Consortium of Historic Germantown, which will be profiled on a tour tomorrow that I hope you'll take with you. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming Dr. Dunbar, who'll speak for a bit. We'll have some Q&A and then we'll introduce uh, the 2020 uh, program committee, or host committee, to tell us about next year's event in Las Vegas. And you'll have a tough act to follow, I tell you. But Dr. Dunbar, what are we waiting for? That made me tired, just listening to it. David said, how do you do it? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I need to go home and rest. Um, thank you all for um, joining me today. And for some of you who I've seen in the room who I've, I know in different capacities, um, I've had the opportunity to sort of tell this story uh, to you. Um, David and I, the one thing David didn't say about me is that I'm a Philadelphian. So um, I always rep Philly wherever I go, uh, in addition to all the other stuff that's important too. Um, but, but I make that point because David and I worked together um, doing really important work at Cliveden um, and other organizations throughout the city. So I thank you for the invitation um, to have this opportunity to share the work um, that came out a couple years ago and that sort of still resonates, not just in, I mean, I know we're sort of thinking about local history and state history, but uh, one of the things that I think is really important for historians to do is to take those local and state histories, right, and to make them applicable across the nation, across the globe. And I'm hoping
hoping that that's what I did with uh, the story of, of Ona Judge. So I'll, I'll wrap to you all for a few minutes, uh, and then we'll have a little bit of time for, um, for Q&A. So 42 years ago, in January, ABC made history. And my generation and those older than I remember the broadcast of the television miniseries Roots, the saga of an American family based on Alex Haley's work. Roots aired in 1977. It was seen by over 100 million viewers. It was one of the most watched television broadcast events. It won nine Emmys. Most of black Hollywood was cast in Roots. Uh, and, and for families such as mine, it really became uh, a broadcast event in our household. And I was in, uh, I'll give up my age here, I was in first grade when, when Roots uh, first aired. And my parents believed that it was important for my sister and I that we should watch every night of the miniseries. So, like, that was a lot of Roots for a first, first grader, right? It was like eight nights or something. You know, a lot of roots. Um, and I, I remember, I have this, this memory of, of carefully spreading my Raggedy Ann blanket on the, on the carpet and really preparing to watch this presentation. And as a family, we watched a young man who we all came to know as Kunta Kinte endure kidnapping and beatings and the degradation of the auction block. And viewers were really introduced to characters who, although trapped in the unimaginable violence of slavery, managed to find a way to maintain their dignity, their resistance, their souls. And it wasn't until I was much older that I understood the importance of roots to many American families, not just my own, but especially for black families. Uh, parents and most of black America wanted desperately to climb out of television's black history famine. Shortly after its premiere, roots was plagued with controversy regarding the authenticity of Haley's research and scholarship, but for families like mine, it really didn't matter. We had no alternatives. Many criticized what they saw as romanced rela rom uh, romanticized relationships that appeared in Roots. We were grateful to see our history appear in prime time. Grateful that the stories of the enslaved were available to a large audience. Grateful that Kunta Kinte had become a household name. Now, I had no moment, no idea that in this moment in 1977, that this would sort of help shape my professional trajectory. When I think about what prompted me to become an historian, a writer, I think about the power of roots and what eventually would help sort of define my passion for writing the histories of the enslaved and delivering that history to the public. For many years, I asked myself, why don't we see more inclusive history on television, in film, in museums, in public spaces? When will this change? What are we waiting for? And while there's an incredible amount of work to do, I think all of us in this room see and celebrate and recognize the rich opportunity centered in public history. So about 15 years ago, I was um, completing research for my first book. And as David says, I write about some slavery and freedom uh, in the North with special attention to, to black women. And I was finishing up this, this work on the first book, and I came across, uh, you know, I was doing what nerdy historians do. You know, I was looking at old newspapers and, um, you know, going blind in the microfilm room. And um, this was, of course, before the age of anything being really digitized. Um, 
and I always tell my graduate students, you have no idea. Uh, so I'm in the, the microfilm room, and I'm trying to get a feel for what everyday life was like at the end of the 18th century in Philadelphia. So I'm looking through newspapers, what are they um, talking about, what are the political events, what uh, are they selling, what are they buying? And so I come across uh, a, a runaway slave advertisement. And I sort of stopped and I thought, okay, that's a little weird. It's the date was 1796. It was a Philadelphia newspaper. Slavery is pretty much wrapped up or almost uh, in the city. Like, who's, who's advertising for a runaway slave? And very soon, as sort of I looked at the advertisement, I realized that this was an advertisement from the household of George Washington. The ad was for a runaway slave, a woman named, who they called Oni Judge, who'd run away from the president's house. And I paused and I asked myself, okay, why don't I know this story? I'm a Philadelphian, I'm a supposed expert in African-American women's history of this time period, but I don't really know this history. Why is that? And I really sort of became obsessed with uh, figuring out who this woman was. And I think for most biographers, we sort of become a little obsessed with, with our subjects. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I'll find a way to weave this into the first book. And then I said, no, um, I need to come back to this. I'm gonna finish this first book, get this tenure right quick. And then, um, <laughs> and no, real talk. Um, and then be able to sort of dedicate my time and energy uh, to this woman. And what I realized was that um, following her, learning about her, took me on a nine-year journey of researching and writing about one of the most incredible women I've ever encountered in the archives. And so I'm gonna invite you to walk with me through 18th century Philadelphia. Rain drenched the streets of Philadelphia in 1796, and weather in the city of brotherly love was often fickle at this time of year, vacillating between extreme cold and oppressive heat. But rain was almost always appreciated in the nation's capital. It erased the putrid smells of rotting food, of animal waste and filth that permeated the cobblestone roads of the new nation. It reminded Philadelphians that the long and punishing winter was behind them. Spring rain cleansed the streets and souls of Philadelphians. It brought optimism and hope and a feeling of rebirth. And in the midst of the promises of spring, Ona Judge, a young enslaved woman received devastating news. She learned that she was to leave Philadelphia, a city that had become her home. Judge was to travel back to her birthplace of Virginia and prepare herself to be given away as a wedding gift to her owner's granddaughter. Today I'll introduce to you one of the most understudied fugitive slaves in America. At the age of 22, Judge literally stole herself from the Washingtons, forcing the president to show his slave-catching hand. As a fugitive, Judge would test the president's will, his reputation, the most important man in the nation, heralded with winning the American Revolution, could not reclaim his enslaved woman. Ona Judge did what very few people had done before. She beat the president. Judge was never caught. So I always sort of take a moment, you know, when historians are deep in the archives sort of thinking about these projects, we, we sort of forget about um, sort of what the finished product will look like. And I had been working with the title Never Caught really since the beginning um, of my work on Ona. And so I finished the manuscript, my editor liked it, um, she'd signed off on it, submitted, I sort of gave that some sigh of relief. 
And then I got that sort of dreaded call from marketing, right? So for those of us who publish on trade presses, what we realize when we move from academic presses to trade presses, like people really care in marketing, right? They're trying to make some money off these books. And so um, the folks from marketing called and they said, um, Erica, we have a, a problem. And I was like, well, okay, what's the problem? And they said, we hate your title. <laughs> You're giving the story away. And so I paused and uh, I thought, okay, well, we have other examples of similar kinds of titles in plays and narratives and books and, you know, 12 years a slave. He was going to be a slave for 12 years, right? <laughs> Something was going to happen. But he was a slave, you know, death of a salesman. We knew how that was going to shake out. And what you know, what they really wanted me to do was to use language like, I don't know, I can't even remember what the suggestions were. Free, free, run into freedom or finding freedom. And it, it was very important for me to reject that and to not use the title free or freedom, words free or freedom in the title, because in reality, Ona Judge was never free. She was simply never caught. So I won that battle. Um, <laughs> then they did the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of, you know, that's um, marketing. And, um, <laughs> but also true, right? So the give and take in, um, in the, the production of, uh, of a text. Um, I show this, I have this image that I like to show of Mount Vernon. I know most of you, probably all of you have been there. Um, but I always, when I'm, especially when I'm teaching, um, I find it more important these days to have as many visuals as possible, but I also want you to sort of know, see the space in which uh, Ona lived and, or at least uh, was born and sort of raised in as a young, young girl. This is an older photo. Um, the photos of her or the images of the house um, during her time there, would, well, there was no photography, of course, but some of the earlier photos are not as great. I want you to sort of have an image. Uh, this is, of course, the back um, porch of Mount Vernon. So when you stand on this porch, you look out into the beautiful uh, Potomac, and this is the place in which uh, Ona Judge was born and spent some of her early years. Today, I introduce a new American hero, an enslaved girl raised at Mount Vernon who once exposed to the ideas of freedom was compelled to pursue it at any cost. This was a woman who found the courage to defy the President of the United States, the wit to find allies, to escape, to outnegotiate, to run and to survive. Her story is the only existing account, sort of full account, of a fugitive once held by the Washingtons. It's the only fugitive account we think from uh, any enslaved person from 18th century Virginia. And Judge's life exposes the sting of slavery and the drive of defiance. She guarded what she called her freedom every day of her life never regretting this decision to fight for what she believed in, and that was her right to be free. So Ona's born sometime in 1773-74. Of course, the Washingtons did not keep exact records of birth dates of the enslaved. Ona's mother was an enslaved seamstress by the name of Betty. Uh, and just for, for clarification, Ona was technically owned by Martha Washington. Uh, Betty was Martha's slave. And so, you know, it's funny when um, I first started with this project and I was looking at the marriage of, of George and Martha Washington, you know, when, when George and Martha married, um, their lives changed dramatically, more so probably for, for George Washington, because, you know, as my, my grandmother would have said, he came up in that marriage, right? <laughs> Martha brought some money. Um, and, and wealth, and, and much of that wealth existed in the form of enslaved people. 
So Ona's mother, Betty, was one of the enslaved who came with Martha to uh, Mount Vernon. Ona was born, as I said, sometime in 1773. Her father was an indentured servant, white, a man named Andrew Judge. He was a tailor. Uh, Betty was a seamstress. I don't know the nature of their encounter. I don't call it a relationship because I don't know if it was that. What I do know is at uh, some point, Ona was born and recognized with the surname of Judge. So do I have a birth certificate? No, of course not. It's right, right, 1773. Um, but and she's an enslaved person. But there's no one else on the entire estate of Mount Vernon with the last name of Judge except for Andrew Judge. There's no one else in all of Alexandria, Virginia with the last name of Judge except for Andrew Judge. And Ona was described as being mixed race, so Andrew Judge was her father, right? She would eventually uh, be called up at the age of 10 to um, the house to serve as Martha Washington's um, sort of right-hand servant. Over time, she became that enslaved person, that preferred enslaved person by Martha Washington, her sort of top slave. I don't have the better, I should have a better sort of phrase for that, and I struggle with that each time I talk about her, um, but she was really um, a Martha Washington's preferred slave. And this became, this problematic in 1789 when George Washington was elected as president and uh, the family was to move to New York and of course as we all know later here to Philadelphia and I'm going to read very briefly from the book about this moment that Ona because of her preferred slave status is torn from her family the young Ona Judge was far from an experienced traveler. The teenager knew only Mount Vernon and its surroundings and had never traveled far from her family and loved ones. For Judge, the move must have been similar to the dreaded auction block. Although she was not to be sold to a different owner, she was forced to leave her family for an unfamiliar destination hundreds of miles away, Judge would have no choice but to stifle the terror she felt and to go on about the work of preparing to move, folding linens, packing Martha Washington's dresses and personal accessories, and helping with the grandchildren were the tasks at hand. And it wasn't her place to complain or question Judge had to remain strong and steady, if not for herself, then for her mistress, who appeared to be falling apart at the seams. Like Judge, Martha Washington had no choice about the move to New York. Her life was at the direction of her husband, who was now the most powerful man in the country. Mrs. Washington and Ona Judge may have shared similar concerns, but of course, only Martha Washington was allowed to express discontent and sorrow. Martha Washington was unhappy and everyone knew it, including her frightened slave. The president's nephew, Robert Lewis, would also soon be made aware of it. When he arrived at the estate on May 14th, things were in disarray. Lewis, who served as Washington's secretary between 1789 and 91, was chosen to escort his aunt and her grandchildren to New York. But he was surprised and a bit concerned when he arrived to find a frenzied and hectic scene. Lewis wrote, everything appeared to be in confusion. The manifestation of Mrs. Washington's conflicting feelings. Robert Lewis described the departure, which finally took place on May 16, 1789, as an emotional moment for the enslaved and the First Lady. He wrote, after an early dinner and making all necessary arrangements in which we were greatly retarded, it brought us to three o'clock in the afternoon. 
when we left Mount V. The servants of the house and a number of the field Negroes made their appearance to take leave of their mistress. Numbers of these poor wretches seemed greatly agitated, much affected. My aunt, equally so. Betty, Ona Judge's mother, must have been one of those agitated slaves. Not only was she losing her 16-year-old daughter, but she was also losing her son, Austin, who would serve as one of the Washington's waiters. Austin's wife, Charlotte, and their children would have joined in the morning. Betty watched her children leave Mount Vernon, a reminder of what little control enslaved mothers had over the lives of their children. If she found any comfort that day, it would have been that brother and sister were traveling together. Still, Betty knew that her relationship with her children would never be the same. And so this is the moment that Ona asked or forced uh, to leave uh, Mount Vernon, the home that she knew. And uh, they would travel to New York. I'm always grateful these days to Lin-Manuel Miranda because my students at least know the nation's capital was in New York and you know <laughs> there was something going on politically up there for a little bit. Uh, and then of course the nation's capital uh, moves to um, Philadelphia. Uh, this is a lithograph uh, that I, I borrowed from my friends at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, actually, a lithograph is done a little bit later, um, sort of the early 19th century, um, 1830s or so around there. Um, but once again, I always use it in part because this is a sort of stone's throw from where we are now. The building, of course, is no longer standing. Um, but once again, an image is always helpful. And so I always, you know, when I'm talking to, to folks who've read the book or thinking about reading the book, uh, I sort of have to explain what Philadelphia in the 1790s uh, was like and what it meant for the Washingtons to come to Philadelphia and to come to Philadelphia with nine enslaved people. By uh, 1790, when they moved from New York to Philadelphia, to, uh, slavery for the most part is relatively gone, uh, wrapping up at least in in Pennsylvania, but most more specifically in Philadelphia. And so Ona entered into a city in which she saw black freedom, really on display in a way that she didn't even see it in New York. At that moment, Philadelphia had the largest free black population in the country. And when she walked into the streets of Philadelphia, she would have seen uh, free black men and women selling their fruits and vegetables, their pepper pot soup, the, the building of Mother Bethel around the corner, all of this would have been very different from what she experienced in New York and definitely different from her life at Mount Vernon. And not only was it different for Ona, but it was different for the Washingtons who were committed to maintaining at that point human bondage. They were coming to the city of Philadelphia where slavery was over, but refused to leave behind the enslaved. And the problem was, however, that the law made that difficult for the Washingtons. And so there's this moment um, where uh, they realize that they're gonna have to work the law. Uh, the the um, attorney general comes to pay a visit to the Washingtons. George Washington is down doing a, a southern tour. Martha's at home, and he says, look, I have to talk to you. We have a problem. The laws of Pennsylvania state that you can't keep, if you're an out-of-state resident and you bring your slaves to Pennsylvania, you can only keep them here for six months. And if you overstay that six-month window, the enslaved have the right to be set free. And Martha and George had sort of known about the law, but sort of thought that because they were there on business, <laughs> no, really, he, he said that, um, because he was there on official business, he was exempt, um, and he was not. And, and the, the most sort of the funny part about this 
conversation with the uh, Attorney General says to, to Martha Washington, the reason that I know this to be true is because my slaves came to me and said, it's six months, we're done. So here's this moment where the enslaved are basically, illiterate enslaved people are telling the attorney general the law, right? And they get their freedom. So this is a moment where uh, Tobias Lear, George Washington's secretary, sends a uh, note to George Washington in the South. And he says, you know, what would you have us do with the blacks in the family? That's what he wrote. And George Washington responded quickly. And he said, we're going to create, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're going to create a slave rotation plan. And every six months, we'll rotate our slaves out of the state, back home to Virginia, or if that's too much of an inconvenience, a quick trip across the river to New Jersey, and basically reset the clock on slavery. So, you know, I'm reading through these letters, letters that many biographers have read. And I'm sitting there like, George, what were you doing? You know, that was like, when we think about the availability of other kinds of labor in Philadelphia at that moment, it makes very clear what he and Martha Washington's wishes were, and that was that they would be served by enslaved people, their enslaved people. Ona would spend uh, almost all of her teenage and early years here in this house until February of 1796, where there was a palpable unease in the executive mansion. The Washingtons received uh, a letter, and they received a letter from their uh, granddaughter, who I have a, an image of, Eliza Park Custis Law. This is an image done by um, Gilbert Stewart, and the rumor was that he was actually doing a, a, a store, uh, an image of George Washington. And uh, Eliza, as the granddaughter was there visiting, she became um, annoyed and bothered by how much time it was taking. She burst in the doors, and Gilbert Stewart decided to paint her because she was interesting, right? But I always show this because I want us to know who Eliza was. Eliza was uh, the Washington's 19-year-old granddaughter. She was Martha Washington's granddaughter. One thing to note, the Washingtons never had um, biological children together. Uh, George Washington had no biological children that we know of. Um, and so the grandchildren were of, of significance for Martha. So she writes to the Washingtons and she says, I'm getting married and you don't know him and he's 20 years older than I am. And he's a Brit, right? And he's spent a bunch of years in India, and uh, I'd like your blessing. And so, of course, Martha Washington is completely upset about it. Uh, it's interesting, sort of reading the gossip of the founders. Uh, John Adams was writing a letter at home to, to Abigail saying, oh, yes, and uh, Betsy, who they called, Eliza's nickname has um, uh, she has a new uh, suitor, a man significantly older than she, and he's sort of and he has children from another relationship, an Indian woman, right? So like there's all and that was true. So more sort of um, craziness for the Washingtons to have to deal with, and so they're asked. She's basically writing and asking for their approval of the marriage. And eventually George Washington writes back and says, if this is what you want, certainly this is uh, what we will support. They don't go to the wedding, but they support it. Meanwhile, Martha Washington is trying to figure out how she is going to assist and help her granddaughter, who she knew was kind of volcanic, difficult, um, troubled perhaps. How was she gonna do this from Philadelphia? She was living in Virginia. And so she made the decision to give her the very best wedding gift that she could. And that wedding gift was Ona Judge. So on Mar in March of 1796, she married her husband, Thomas Law, and Judge understood what was about to happen. 
judge knew that if she judge knew that what the future held should she not heed the advice of her free black associates she supposed if she went back to virginia she should never have a chance to escape and once she learned that upon the decease of her master and mistress she would become the property of a granddaughter of theirs by the name of Custis. She knew that she had to flee. She imagined that her work for the laws would begin immediately, not after the death of her owners, prompting a fierce clarity about her future and her dislike of Eliza Custis. She stated, I was determined never to be her slave. Her decision was made she would risk everything to avoid the clutches of the new Mrs. Law. Judge was well informed and knew that her decision to flee was far more than risky. But still she was willing to face dog sniffing kidnappers and bounty hunters for the rest of her life. Yes, her fear was consuming, but so too was her anger. Judge could no longer stomach her enslavement, and it was the change in her ownership that pulled the trigger on Judge's fury. She had given everything to the Washington things. For 12 years, she had served her mistress faithfully, and now she was to be discarded like the scraps of material that she cut from Martha Washington's dresses. Any false illusions she had clung to had evaporated, and Judge knew that no matter how obedient or loyal she may have appeared to her owners, she would never be considered fully human. Her fidelity meant nothing to the Washingtons. She was their property to be sold, mortgaged, or traded with whomever they wished. And knowing this, Ona made a decision that she would have to leave. And on Saturday, May 21st, Judge walked out of the president's house and never returned. This is an image I'm sure you all in the back, maybe in the front, can't really read it because it, you know, I can't because of my eyes at this point in my life. Um, but this is the first, one of the first uh, runaway slave advertisements that I, t I talked about in the opening uh, of my talk today. Uh, the Washingtons actually advertised for Ona for over a week in two different newspapers. Absconded from the household of the President of the United States, Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled with very black eyes and bushy hair. She's of middle stature, slender and delicately formed, about 20 years of age. Uh, this was the advertisement that went out, and really, for the next, uh, for the rest of the wa of George Washington's life, he would pursue her. He would attempt to reclaim Ona. Ona found her way to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, now I'm not going to tell you everything about that because I have books outside. I'm trying to sell and <laughs> sign, so you know you'll have to read that part in the book. Um, but what I will say is, she finds her way uh, to New England. And then she manages to, to stay in New England for over half a century. And George Washington would make repeated attempts to reclaim her, both as president and then as a private citizen. And although Ona's life, her attempts to stay free or disconnected from the Washingtons was difficult, she managed to do it under the most difficult of situations and circumstances. It forced Ona uh, to become the strongest of women, to build a life for herself, all while living in the shadow of slavery. And I'll close, I'll begin my, my sort of closing my talk, we have a few minutes for um, Q&A. Ona, um, it was an honor to write this book. Uh, when I turned in the manuscript, the final manuscript for this book, I, I knew that I wasn't quite done. And part of that is just the, the problem that biographers, you know, we don't want to let go of our subjects even when the books are, are completed. But I felt like Ona's story was so important. 
um, that it could bring about um, sort of feelings of um, strength and courage and optimism while upending the myths that we have about early America, about um, founding fathers in particular. But I wanted to reach a larger audience, not just a sort of large adult general audience. And so I made the decision to work with um, a, a young a friend who's a, a writer for, for children to adapt Never Caught for young readers. And part of what the reason I did that was because teachers, elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, would approach me and say, how do we, how do I tell this story to children? How, if we're going to begin to rethink the way we tell stories, the way we communicate history, it's too late to start in college with the students that I teach. We must do it for younger students, younger readers. And so that really prompted me to think about how we could use Ona's life to challenge some of the ways we teach about the early republic, to teach the way we teach about George Washington, the way we teach about Philadelphia. And so I made the decision uh, to adapt this book so that more readers, more people will know Ona's story. So I'm going to end here and what I'll say in closing is that um, it's been an honor to tell Ona's story, a privilege to, to tell her story, but also an obligation. And I thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we have some time for um, Q&A questions, if there are any. Are we doing a microphone or are we just standing up and there's a microphone? So if anybody has um, a question, there's a microphone or a comment. And it could be, if not specifically about the book, it could be, of course, about, um, about public history, about um, the ways in which we tell stories to larger audiences. You all are shy. People are heading to the door, not to the <laughs> microphone. Um, I, I would have, oh, oh, here comes. Uh, I have one over here. Sorry. Hey. Oh, there's another. I was looking dead there. It's like, too thank much. you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. I have a question. Sure. And thank you so much for this presentation. I had never heard of Ona Judge, so I appreciate um, a new rabbit hole for me to go down. Um, so the theme of this year's conference is what are we waiting for? And I'd really love for you to kind of make, you, you, started, you started a little bit introducing it. Yeah. I would love for you to help expound what do you think this helps professionals to do stumbling upon um, a history that you are both obligated um, and privileged to share, even yeah. while it uncovers and um, kind of deconstructs the mythologies that we tend to hold in these narratives. Yeah, thank you for that um, important question. I think we're, we're sort of living in a moment right now where we have um, the benefit of 40 years, at least when I'm thinking about the way we tell difficult stories or difficult truths, difficult history, specifically about slavery, right? Because that's what I do. Um, we have the benefit, or I have the benefit, of standing on now 40 years, over 40 years, of what we would call sort of professionalized African-American history, right? So in those four decades in which we started to see uh, manuscripts and monographs appear about the African-American experience, about uh, the importance of their inclusion in history, people like myself were exposed and given opportunities to make our way through places in order to write these books. So I know that I stand on not just Ona's shoulders, right, because I do, but I stand on the shoulders of the historians who came before me, the John Pope Franklins, who really laid the groundwork 
for the early publication of history. Why has it taken so long? Well, and you know, this is a, a question that I deal with with my graduate students all the time, or my undergraduates, really. Um, you know, to, to rewrite history, that's a painful process. It's painful for people like myself who spend years in archives, combing through archives that were not created to commemorate or even remember the lives of the enslaved, right? So we are pulling together shards, threads of lives that we weave together to come up with a narrative. And now that we're at this place, we're historically in the profession where African-American women's history is a subfield, right? There, that was not the case 40 years ago. Now it is. And now that the profession, at least in terms of um, the, the academy and history, has changed and accepted that, I feel like we're in a moment where public institutions, uh, museums, and libraries um, benefit from that knowledge. I also think we're in an age right now where, in terms of um, the sort of growing adult population, they want to know the truth, or at least folks in this room do. You know, then and, and and you know maybe some of the other people. Look, we're we're living in a moment where actually you know we know politically um, it's everything except uh, the facts, right, given to us. Uh, and so I really feel like at this moment, it is imperative that we as librarians, public scholars, historians, um, museum curators, that we fight back against that reshaping of an American narrative that is completely inaccurate and drives the political moment at this time. This is the opportunity that I get to tell my undergraduates, this is why you need to major in history. You actually, this is relevant. This is relevant. This is how we will combat and defeat fascism. We have to do this. If we don't speak up, if we don't write these books, not just for adults, but for younger readers, if we don't curate our museums in ways that express the truth, histories that are inclusive, that don't erase the past because it's complicated or difficult or uncomfortable. If we don't have libraries that focus on acquisitions of 18th and 19th century texts written by people of African descent or across the diaspora, then what are we doing? Well, then we've lost. And I think all of us in this room understand that you know, we're doing this in part, it's our chosen profession, but I think for many of us, it goes much deeper than that. So I feel like uh, we've waited a long time, but now um, it is imperative that we take our tools, our skill sets, our knowledge to create the America that we want it to be. Um, I really had more of a comment. I just wanted you to know that this morning I went on a wonderful tour of badass women of Philadelphia with an innovative tour company here in the city, and Ona Judge was uh, a star of that tour. So Correct. I just wanted to illustrate the power of the trickle-down effect. Yeah. You are one person who looked at archives that had, like you said, been looked at many, many times, and your perspective brought out a story that's changing the narrative. And just like Ona stood up, one person can stand up and change the narrative thank for the you. whole community. So thank, thank you. you, and Ona's thank wonderful, and the tour was wonderful if you're looking for something to do. Thank <laughs> you so much. Th it's so, thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that I was able to do after the, you know, the book came out um, is I went and spent some time with tour, gu tour guides in Independence Hall. Um, because, you know, this is the ground zero, right, for Ona's story, for the story of the Washingtons in Philadelphia. You can go, of course, to the site where um, the house once stood, and there's, of course, a tour. 
but I felt like it was really important for me to go talk to the tour guides who were going to talk to, you know, the visitors from not just across the nation, but across the world. So think about that. You're right. The trickle-down effect is important. I see something in the archives. I write a book about it. Uh, other people read it. Tour guides interpret it. They tell that public story, that history, to a large and international public. That changes the narrative. Um, and so I think, once again, it reinforces the importance of what we do as public scholars, as um, uh, those engaged in telling history in different forms. Go ahead. Yes. Hello. I just want to make a, a comment. Um, um, thank you for writing your book and then also about the children. Yes. Um, I'm Joyce Begay Foss. I'm Navajo Dene, uh, and this is our country. Native American, um, and we are underrepresented too as far as our history. We've always had it written for us, and I see upcoming young scholars writing books about our people, and also I want to see more for our children. I think it's important for all of us. We need to have more history for the, our young people. Um, it's, it's very important. Um, so, um, and also for our Navajo people, we do have it in language, but our, our history is oral history. Yeah. So we, through our traditions, we, we talk to each other and you sit down and you learn to your elders and, and we're losing that. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's sad, but, um, as an I'm a weaver too. And I, I brought my mother with me today. Um, she's 85, stand up mom. Hi mom. mom. <laughs> she's um, she's she's uh, her clan is Nakaida Nae born for I'm born for Tuachini was my father. Mm. So my late father was actually had a doctorate in physics, PhD, worked with Los Alamos Labs. Mm -hmm. But my mother, she's the boss. She's a the Navajos were matriarchal, so the mo yeah. women are in charge. So I think this year it's really amazing how many things are focusing on women. Yeah. Um, we're we're look through look through the political side of women. Us women, we need to really, um, you know, stand together and look at some of these issues nationwide yeah. and and help our we have our children to worry about. New yeah. men too. We have yeah. to help and work together to to bring this country back. I, I could talk on and on politically too, well, but you know I worry about some of the issues that are standing in the forefront right now yeah. that are just totally absurd and and so um, disrespectful of how international people look at our country. I, I let me, I'm gonna I thank you. I mean I I'm so happy that you spoke um, and that you raised these very important issues of voice, right? Who tells these stories? who's given access to, um, to publishers, right? How do you get through that maze? Who, um, who writes this narrative? And I think it speaks to what I said before about 40 years, I stand on 40 years, at least in terms of the academy of recognized African-American history, but clearly oral history is a part of, of everyone's history, but more specifically people who are considered marginalized. And I agree 100% with you that um, it is incumbent upon us to make certain that there are avenues for people from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, to tell their stories. And what I would ask you to do is to sit down with your mother. You are 85 years old, that is a beautiful blessing, but sit down Take that history down. You share it. Yes. Well, I just want to say a few words. I'm so happy to be here. I'm uh, a Navajo lady, and I'm 85, and I'm so happy to be here with my daughter. Mm. So she tells the story mm. of our Native people, which is so important. And as a mother, grandmother, and a great grandmother. I have taught my children our own cultural ways. We believe in our own, people always say it's a religion. It is not a religion. It is a way of life. We have to 
We have to walk in beauty, preserve our Mother Earth, and be there for our children. Our people have gone through so much. We have endured, we're enduring people. We were, uh, we have a long walk. Mm -hmm. Our people were taken from the reservation and taken to Fort Summer where they were incarcerated for years. But we came back and we're true Americans. Yes. Our people, our men served. Don't forget the Navajo Code, code Talkers. Yes. That's our yes. in our history. And I just had my grandson who was in the army. Just recently, he served four tours. Mm. One, two in Afghanistan and two in Iraq. And so we still fight for our nation. So Thank you. remember us as an enduring people Thank with you. courage. Thank you. With courage and faith mm -hmm. in our own people. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm very proud of my daughter. <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. Oh, you. I forgot to tell you, um, I'm reason I'm here with my mom is because I, I won an award and an exhibition at the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture where I work. Um, I, I'm an educator, but I also curate. So I awarded uh, a national award on the Lifeways of Southern Athabascan, which is uh, an exhibit about the Apache and people where I'm from. Congratulations. I want to thank our speaker, Dr. Dunbar. She'll have a chance to answer other questions for you as she sells some books and signs them uh, in our vestibule. Dr. Erica Dunbar. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Nathan Harper. I'm the preserve archaeologist at the Springs Preserve in Las Vegas, the site of the original Vegas of Las Vegas. Joining me is Melissa Kaiser from the Discovery Museum. We're very excited to have everybody visit us in Las Vegas in 2020, fall of 2020, September 23rd through 26th. We've learned a lot here, learning about the colonial and revolutionary history, as well as the contemporary issues that plague us today, but it's time to go west. So come out to the West and visit us in Las Vegas. Some people have asked, why are you coming to Las Vegas? We're a metro area of over 2.2 million people. Nearly one-fifth of our population is foreign-born. Uh, UNLV has been called the most diverse campus in the United States by US News and World Report. We have 290 days of sunshine a year. We were recently called the best place to have a dog in the United States as well. So thank you very much. We are excited to have you come and visit us. Viva Las Vegas, Viva A-A-S-L-H. And we have a short video showing some of the sights and sounds you're going to see in Las Vegas. So thank you, and we look forward to seeing you next September. <laughs> 